All right, so friends, we are continuing in our series called Answers Questioning the Bible. And what we did was over the last several months, we took uh, surveys of all of you and said, what questions do you have about the Bible? What questions do you have concerning culture, concerning theology, concerning biblical text? Uh, what, what is on your mind that you would like to hear a message about? And we've gotten tons of great topics for messages, and this one uh, is in no short uh, powder for explosiveness, okay? This, this one is an explosive, like currently a bomb just waiting to be stepped on, and uh, it's women in ministry and the roles of women, okay? This is, this is like super relevant, even for the last week. I'm sure you've seen that the Southern Baptist Convention exed like two major, major mega churches because of this issue. Uh, this is front and center for many in the evangelical world, and this is not the first time we've addressed this. In fact, Eternal City, one of our core commitments is to train and challenge men to lead sacrificially. So from 24 14, we've been talking about the roles of men and women in the Bible. So if you go to our catalog of, of sermons, you'll find a lot of messages on this topic. So this is not the first time we've chose to address this. In that light, there is no way I can cover everything that needs to be covered on this massively important topic. Okay? So don't, please don't expect me to say everything that could possibly be said. There are volumes volumes written on two verses in 1 Timothy 2. Did you hear what I said? Volumes written on two verses in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, which we will dive into, and you'll see right away why volumes have been written. And this has been debated uh, for a long time, but especially since the 60s, uh, and, and because of first wave feminism and so on. Um, and so anyway, I don't intend to offend anyone, but I'm going to assume several of you are going to be offended. That is not my intention, okay? My intention is just to simply be biblical and to reason biblically, and so that is going to uh, require me to explain a few presuppositions. And sadly, my clock has already started. Can we pause? Is that possible? This is not good. All right, so here's a few presuppositions, okay? Number one presupposition. The Bible in its 66 books are accurate, they don't need editing, and what they say is our rule for life and practice, period. Second assumption or second presupposition, not only is it accurate and, and, and binding on us today, but it's also good, okay? Third presupposition, there is a real devil and a horde of followers after him called demons, and they have done great work at distorting, twisting, and perverting God's word and making it seem like an oppressive patriarchal cage. Okay, and, and that, I think, is only going to increase as, as the years continue in the West, sadly. Unless there's a massive revival, uh, Christians, whether you're a man or a woman, if you hold to the Bible, if you would say, yeah, that's, that's true and I believe that, I think you're going to be, if not already, continue to be pushed out to the margins. Uh, if you're not already that, uh, in your neighborhood and at your workplace, etc. Because to believe what we're about to say tonight, which is basically, I'm just going to explain the Bible plainly. 
uh, is way out of step with culture. And so if, if Satan, again, here's another presupposition, if Satan is, as the Bible says, the God of this world, and if the God, like small g God, not capital G God, if he is the small g God who has, as 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 4 says, blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel shining in the face of Christ, then his mission to blind us, not only from the gospel, but from the Bible, which contains the gospel, is one of his primary works, and he's doing a great job at it. Um, to take what God has designed and then twist it, which is the word we get pervert from, to, to twist it and flip it on its head and to make what God says bad seem good and to make what God says is good seem bad. He's done a great job at that. And so I want to encourage you, if this is brand new for you, which for some of you, I think this is brand new. And so what I'm going to say, uh, if you've been drinking culture for even like two years or a year or six months, this is going to seem way out of step for you. And my encouragement would be, don't say, I'm going to a church that believes what I believe. Don't say that. Rather, I would encourage you, wrestle with these, these ideas, uh, wrestle with the scripture and not so much Chris. I have sat and, and, and tried to lovingly... I don't want to say debate, but maybe just defend what I think the Bible says with those of opposite views, even opposite genders. I remember one time, I'm not going to name any names, I sat for four hours straight across the room from a woman I loved, and we just went text for text for text for text until her husband came in and said, you guys have been going at this for four hours. I don't think you're getting anywhere. And we, we both said, well, you believe this and I believe this, and we're not really moving. Okay? So I'm happy to do that with you. I'm not interested in hammering anyone or like scoring debating points. Not, not about that. But I'm just going to try to stick to the text in context throughout the whole context of the entire scripture. Okay? So all the women in here, I love you. All the men in here, I love you too. I really do. And I know that makes some of you feel uncomfortable. I know it because I say I love you to the guys and they're like, mm, yeah. You know, I give you a hug, and you're like, oh, I feel you cringe a little bit. I'm just going to keep saying it and, and hugging you till you say it back. So just expect it, and you know who you are. <laughs> All right, so with that being said, isn't that a great introduction? It took like three minutes, but what a great introduction. All right, here, here is the text that explains one of the most explosive powder keg set of verses in the entire Bible, Okay. Paul, speaking to his pastoral son in the faith, named Timothy, he's giving instructions to him as a pastor of the church at Ephesus. He says this, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. All right, stop. Verse 8. So Paul is, is talking about what men should do, and the desire is not just this is optional, like I desire this, but if not, it's okay. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's laying down authoritative instruction for the church as an apostle. And so he says the men should pray, lifting up holy hands, which was a posture in the Old Testament and in the first century, men would pray, lifting up holy hands, looking up to God, acknowledging his aboveness and his beyond the atmosphere in the third heaven. Um, and then he says, without anger or quarreling. Now, men love to get angry. It's, some have said it's our one emotion, like anger and then tired, and usually tired after being really angry, right? It's like we, we crash because we're so mad, right? But then what happens when you're angry and you're an angry person? You're quarrelsome. It's like, why are you, why are you mad, bro? 
Like you're just always trying to quarrel with someone. And so Paul's like, no, I don't want angry men. I don't want quarrelsome men. I want praying men. And brothers, I want to encourage you, if you would pray more and ask God to take control of you, do you know what the ninth fruit of the Holy Spirit is? Self-control. Which would mean maybe God could help you get control of your anger. That's possible. If God really is the sovereign of the universe with all power, do you think he could maybe take your anger levels down a bit if you keep pleading with him, you keep knocking, you keep asking until he shows up? I'll bet he would. And so anyway, that's what Paul says to the guys. He's like, guys, stop with the anger. Stop being so quarrelsome. And why don't you pray instead? Likewise, now he's going to give instruction to women that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and, ninth fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Now, this verse 9b, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, okay? That, That seems a bit harsh, right? Like, why can we not braid our hair, but we can, like, straighten it? Why can we crimp it? Is that the word crimp it? We're We could crimp it, but you can't braid it. I better not see any braids of any kind, right? He's not saying that, okay? In in the cultural setting of Ephesus in the first century, especially at this time, uh, wealthy women, there was kind of a women's liberation movement even in the first century, and wealthy women were uh, flaunting their wealth and their authority and their status in this kind of new progressive movement. And Paul's like, I don't want you to be like the women of the world. Okay, I don't want you to be like the women in your culture, uh, weaving gold into your hair and, and pearls and showing off your costly attire, okay? The outward appearance is I have wealth and I can lord that over you. Now, this might, if you want to say, all right, we'll apply that today, Pastor Chris. All right, your $700 coach bag, like you want to put that right out front, and if someone doesn't notice it, you kind of whack them with it. You see that? Is that a good illustration? All right. Ladies, you got to let me know. The idea is, even if you have money, you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself because by doing so, you're saying, I'm above you, and you need to know that. Okay? Now, is it a, a sin to have nice things? No, it's not. It's what is your attitude towards them? Right? Like, let's say you get a new car, and it's a nice new car. You know, it's got leather, and it's got, uh, you know, 22-inch spinner rims, because I know every woman wants spinners, and of course. But, you know, do you roll up, hit the brakes, and the wheels keep spinning, and you look over at the Ford Taurus, and you're like, mm-hmm, that's right. Taurus. You know, what is your attitude towards you because of your possessions versus others who do not have those possessions? Because what that implies is your worth and value comes from what you have, and that's bad theology. Because worth and value for a man or a woman does not come from what they own, what they possess, or their skills, or their giftedness, or even their attractiveness. What does it come from? The Imago Dei, or being made in the image of God. That's what gives men and women dignity, value, and worth. Okay? And so, without that foundational belief coming from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which we just read, you will go astray in all kinds of different ways. Okay? And so, Paul is speaking in part to a, a movement in the culture that was sweeping in the church. That doesn't happen today, does it? 
Not at all, ever, okay? But that's what, that's what was happening 2,000 years ago, and you don't think Satan plays the same things with culture over and over and over again. This is hot in the culture, and, and people in the church get pulled into it, and his aim is always to devour your faith. Didn't, didn't Jesus say that to Peter? Hey, Peter, you know, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but you know, Peter, I prayed for you. For what? That your faith wouldn't fail. And you remember, he did sift Peter, right? Three times he denied Jesus, and he went out and wept bitterly, and he repented, and he was restored in John 21. Judas denied Jesus as well, right? But did he repent from the heart and turn? No, he had worldly sorrow and grief and ended up killing himself. You remember? Okay, so here in 9b, that's what he's speaking to. So are we good with women in braids here? We're good, okay? This was a cultural issue. He's not speaking specifically to braided hair. He's speaking specifically to the situation in Ephesus. But the overarching principle still stands, okay? If you can afford Gucci sunglasses, you should not look down on the Ray-Ban owners. And the Ray-Ban owners should not look down on the Target dollar rack, right? Because your sunglasses don't give you dignity, value, and worth. Right? But you know that temptation, right? It's like, dollar store, <laughs> right? And, and that, that, is, that is terrible for the soul, okay? And if that's you, right, if you're like Breitling Rolex, baby, you see that? You know what that means about me? I'm sure you've heard of me, haven't you? You've seen my Facebook profile? You know how many friends I have? Right? And on and on we could go, right? Hey, my Instagram's hot. How many friends do you have? 30? Who are you? No one, okay? And, and, and we can do this with anything, right? And at heart, it's assigning dignity, value, and worth outside of God. Don't do it if you're a Christian. It's a trap, and it's a satanic trap. All right, 10. But how should you dress as a woman with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? Now, notice he didn't get very specific. He said, look, just proper dress for a woman who professes godliness or professes to be a believer. And at Eternal City, we do not have a dress code, praise God. Like, we're not going to tell you what you can and can't wear. But there is something to godly apparel, not t-shirts with verses on them, though I will wear those too. That's not what it means. It's what are you trying to do? What's the heart? Are you trying to attract people to yourself, eyes, women and men, by what you're wearing, either by its cost or by its form. Get me? All right. I do not permit, now here, here, is, here is the two verses that have lit the church on fire at current, okay? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Some translations literally say silent, okay? And, and a bad application of that verse would be this. When we're in the church and, you know, a woman goes to talk to you, you're, you're you know, you flip to the, the Timothy verse and you're like, none of that, right? We don't talk in church because haven't you read? I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. Rather, you're supposed to be quiet. Like, I don't want to hear no female voices in, in this room, right? It's not what he's saying, obviously, okay? So what is he saying there? 
Well, he grounds what he's saying in creation, and then we'll go to other texts in Timothy and other places to explain what he is saying, okay? So, verse 13, for Adam was formed first. Notice what he does. He says, Adam, where where does that point our minds? Genesis. Where Where does Adam show up? Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Okay, very first beginnings, okay? So why does Paul immediately take it to Genesis? Because this is a creation order thing, not a cultural thing, and not a Paul being a chauvinist or a patriarchal turd, as some of you have been taught that he is, okay? He's saying this is a creation thing, uh, guys. And so for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, okay? And so Paul's saying, Adam was formed first, and then Eve was formed after Adam, and, and who was deceived first? Okay? What was Eve's confession to God after he said, have you done this? What have you done? What did she say? The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And so what's Paul doing here? He's just quoting Genesis. He's quoting Eve. She was the one who said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, Adam, on the other hand, was he deceived? No, he was not. He knew full well what he was doing when he took a bite of that fruit, and he directly disobeyed God without deception. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they ran, and they sewed fig leaves together, and God comes walking trying to find them, and they think they can hide from God. And the first thing God says is, Eve, what have you done? He doesn't say that, does he? He says, Adam, where are you? But wait a minute. The woman ate the the fruit first, and she was deceived. But yet he doesn't say anything to Eve first. Who does he call on? Adam. Why? Why? Because Adam was the head of that little household. Adam was the one ultimately responsible for the covering of his wife. And Adam was not deceived, but directly disobeyed God. And so God comes, and he's calling the man to account. Now, what does Adam do in the story? Does he say, God, you're right, I'm so sorry, I repent, forgive me, I failed? No, he says, that woman you gave me. Right, that's messed up. Now, now, it's messed up on a lot of levels, but think about this one. What was Adam told would happen if he ate the fruit? You will surely die. That was clear, right? So when when God comes to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to? What does he say? The woman. Implication? Kill her, not me. Right? Great husband. Right? Like a chapter before, he's singing poetry to her. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Right? And, he, and he's, he's strumming the guitar, singing poetry to her in one chapter. Next chapter, take her head off. Mine should stay on. <laughs> she did it, not me. Right? And, and, and since Genesis 3, we've had male, female, husband, wife, 
sibling, you know, rivalry, and it's, it's just been a mess since. It's been chaos, hasn't it? Right? The first uh, sibling pair kills each other, and then later in Genesis, another sibling wants to kill the other one, right? And then another one wants to kill the other one. Well, well 11 of them want to kill the one, right? And it's just, this is a mess, right? And, and so sin comes and breaks God's perfect order, and this is Paul pointing back to creation, and he's saying, before sin, God made it very good, and there was an order, and sin messed it up, and I'm going to lay instructions down for the church and the home so that we can make it right. That's what Paul's, in a sense, saying here. Adam was not deceived. Direct disobedience. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what he could be saying in verse 13, could be is that certain women in the church in Ephesus were being pulled towards this cultural rebellion against what was modest and proper for women who express or at least claim godliness. And so he could be saying they're being deceived and being pulled by this satanic temptation just like in the garden. That's possible. That would fit the context. Okay. She was deceived, she's being deceived again, pulled towards this temptation, maybe. Yet, verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. Now, part of the subject of our message is gonna be that verse 15, okay? So I'm not gonna leave that alone. We're gonna come back to that and we're gonna dig it real nice. But. I want to move to the very next verse and show you in context that what Paul is doing, remember, we don't just isolate verses, we read them in the context immediately and in the wider context of the book, but then in the wider context of the Bible itself. And so in the immediate context, remember, men get addressed first in verse 8, and then women get addressed, and just in case you didn't catch it with creation order, right? Paul appeals to creation and said, this is God's design. He then goes into the qualifications for pastors, okay? And before we go there, I want you to see uh, in verse 12, what is being forbidden for women is teaching and exercising authority as a pastor, Okay? So it's not ever teaching, and it's not ever exercising authority over a man. It is rather as a pastor, as a pastor. And how do you know this? Well, because in the same book, First Timothy, remember I said text in context, and I see some of you shaking your head, no, I don't believe it. Just, just wait. Just don't leave. Wait for me, okay? Just wait. Look at this. In the same book, just a few chapters later, look at what pastors are supposed to do. Let the elders, elder, pastor, overseer, same office, different words, because what do elders do? They shepherd, which is the word pastor. What do elders do? They oversee a flock or people in a church, okay? So let the elders who rule well, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority, rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in what? Preaching and teaching. The two things in this text that pastors are supposed to do are the very two things just two chapters earlier that women are not allowed to do. Exercise authority 
as a pastor, and I'm going to argue that further as a pastor in just a minute, but also to teach and have an authoritative teaching position over a congregation. Now, without announcing this, you actually experience this every single week. Who preaches at Eternal City Church? The elders. Right? And if you haven't noticed, usually it's a rotation of Chris, then another elder, then Chris, then another elder. And if an elder needs a week off, you get Chris three weeks in a row. And by the end of the third week, we're like, please send someone else in. <laughs> send Pete. Where's Pete? I haven't heard from him in a while. But here the, the idea is ruling well is what elders should do. That means exercising right and godly authority, which is sacrificial, and laboring and preaching and teaching. Now, uh, we were on our men's retreat yesterday, and, and one of the young men with us was like, so what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. He's like, like, that's what you do? You're a pastor? He's like, well, what do you do? You don't really, you have an easy job, right? What do you do? Right? And, I, and I had to name all the things that I do, a, a wide range of things. And, I, and, and he was like, well, preaching's easy. You just get up there and talk. I said, bro, have you ever preached a sermon? No. Have you ever prepared for a sermon? Well, no. Have you ever done it week after week after week after week? No. Then, then shut up, man. No, I didn't say that. I was much more gracious. I was like, you really don't understand what it's like. Look at how Paul says it. Labor in preaching and teaching. Labor. Now, some of you might not think it's labor, but you've probably never preached a sermon either or prepared for one. And maybe one or two sermons isn't bad, but after years of preaching, like your beard grows gray. Like, dude, how old are you? In your 50s? No, I'm not. I'm only in my 40s. But I've been preaching for years, you know, and this is the stuff that happens. It's not good, okay? For the Scripture says, for the Scripture says, now look, Paul appeals to Scripture. I like verse 18, by the way. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So he's saying, pay the pastor, okay? And I could have left that verse out, but I just wanted to throw that in there for all of you. That's what it says, okay? Pay the pastor. And I, I praise God that you all pay your pastor. All right? I love you guys. Keep, keep paying the pastor. <laughs> Let the elders who rule well, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. That means a raise, okay? Talk to Pete, somebody, please. He's the, he's the, he's the finance elder. Double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. All right, so my, my purpose in bringing this in, now remember, this is the same letter to the same man in the same church. What are the women not allowed to do in verse 11 and 12? Learn quietly in all submission, not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now, not only because of five, Chapter 5, what I just showed you, 17 and 18, do I think this is the context, but the very next verse, okay? So I appreciate the divisions in, in our English Bibles. I appreciate the headings, but those are not in the original letters, okay? So imagine not even verse 15, because there was no original verse 15. Those are helpful for us to reference. So I could say, hey, turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy 2.15, and you know where to go, okay? Now, verse 16, oh, wait. Starts a new chapter. So what we have a tendency to do is now think, okay, now he's on to something new. He is not on to something new. He is continuing the thought. Watch. This saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, remember I said earlier, elder, pastor, overseer, what do pastors do? They oversee a flock of people. Now, I want to show you something. Eleven times, either male noun or pronoun is used, and not once is it feminine. Not once. That's significant to the context and what he just said. Okay, look. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone, you say, oh, see, it says anyone. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may fall into, may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I've unpacked this many times in the past, so I don't have to unpack it right now, okay? If you want to know what this means in depth, I will direct you to other sermons we've preached. What I want you to see is continuing the argument, I do not permit a woman to speak or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain silent, points to silent in this context, not exercising authority in this context. As an elder, as a pastor, as an overseer. Okay. I will continue to make that argument as we go with different texts. But I want you to see text in context, okay? Remember, in the original context, Paul is grounding his argument in creation. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. She, uh, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let's look at 15. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what is being said here? Okay, one of the questions that came in for us was, was basically this. I'm going to reword it just a little bit, okay? What in the world does 1 Timothy 2.15 mean? And then 2... What does it mean for those who don't have kids? It's a very personal question. Okay? Now, you could have kids for multi- not have kids for multiple reasons. Okay? Let's think of just a few. Number one, you're too young to have kids. Okay? Number two, you're married, but you're not able to have kids. Okay? Number three, you're married and not able to have kids and not able to adopt and foster for whatever reason. Because uh, adopting and foster care are noble things that I think all Christians should at least consider. Should at least consider. Okay? If not us, then who else? Right? What about when your children are older and grown up and out of the house? Now, you still have children, but they don't need you to change their diapers and make mac and cheese and hot dogs anymore. Right? I can't tell you how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I've made in the past month, and yes, I will cut them into triangles for my son. And if I mistakenly miss an angle and cut a square, oh, do I hear about it, right? And he throws it back in my face, and you know what I do? I just throw him. <laughs> just kidding. 
Just kidding. Better not tweet that without the just kidding. All right? <laughs> That's how pastors get in trouble. No, but, but seriously, I, I will attend to my kids and even to the point of like chopping up their PJ, uh, you know, peanut butter and jelly in a way that they like them. Okay? And, and so there are multiple reasons why women don't have kids. It's not just one reason. And so if this applies to those who childbear, then how does it apply at all? Well, first, what does it mean? All right, there are many options for this verse. I'm going to lay out all the options, and I'm going to give you the one I think it is. Okay? The first option, yet she will be saved through childbearing, could be this. Okay? It could be that the virgin conceived and was with child, and that child became the savior of everyone who would ever believe. Okay? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so, by woman, through womankind, will come the Savior of the world. That's true. And praise God for the lifting up of women in that way, especially the Virgin Mary, who, guys, was like 14 or 15, by the way. Like, we often think of her in the Catholic sense of being maybe like 38, you know, wearing that nice, cool, like, blue hoodie. You know, that all the women just long to wear. If I could just have one of those Virgin Mary blue hoodies, my life would be complete. Right? Little Gucci G right there. You'd be like, dang it. Why can't I have one of those? But, but seriously, she was not like 38. She was like 14, but like just able to have children. And so here she is, this teenage mom with, with child, like having no idea what to do with God become man. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? Uh, so, like, text in cultural context is also important, okay? And so, that's a possibility. I don't think that's what that means. Even though that's certainly possible, that certainly fits the context of the whole Bible. And so, if you're a, a, you know, a biblical scholar, you've studied this and you believe that, that's fine. That's fine. I don't think it's what it means. Um, what, what I think it means, well, here's, a, here's another option before I tell you what I think it means. Saved through childbearing could mean that by conceiving and having children, they fulfill their God-given role, okay? So, I'll give you a conversation that I have with my daughter often. So, my daughter is very inquisitive, and she's asked me more than five or ten times, Dad, why can't women be pastors? Look, I'd like to be a pastor someday. I'm like, not in my house. I'm just kidding. Kidding. Relax. I don't just say that to her. I say, listen, babe, I, I love that you want to, you know, teach and preach the Bible. Like, that's, that's a cool thing. But you know what? I can't have kids. I can't. As much as I want to, as much as I desire to, God created me with the inability to have kids. Okay? At current, right? In like 10 years, we're going to look back at the sermon and be like, pfft. What happened, right? With the CRISPR technology and the gene editing, you watch, it's gonna happen. But for now, I cannot have a baby even if I wanted to, okay? And so the way I explain it to her is simple. You can do things that I can't do, and God made me to do things that you can't do. Now, can in the sense of physically, can she, and will some denominations not only let her but encourage her? Yes, but can in a moral sense. As in, it's immoral for you to go against the Word of God. Now, I realize what I just said. 
And I realize what that means for your either former woman pastor or your friend who's a woman pastor. I get that, okay? But I am taking a biblical view here, and I think I reason it scripturally, and I stand by what I just said, that it's morally wrong for a woman to be a pastor because you're going against clear scriptural claims and demands, okay? So in that sense that you can't do this morally, just like in the sense of you can't lie, can I lie? Yeah, I can, but I shouldn't. And when I do, I should repent. Same thing, morally. It's a moral wrong, okay? And so we have had women who were former pastors who have repented, and they are no longer women pastors, okay? And you know at least one of them, and I'm not going to name who, okay? I'm just going to leave it at that. But it is possible for you to see that this is not good and to turn from it and go a different direction, okay? And I, I understand what this means for your friend, if your friend or your former pastor or your aunt or your mother, I mean, for some of us in this room, mom's the pastor. Like, I get it. This is hard. This is a hard teaching. That's why I said it's like stepping on a landmine, and I risk some of you leaving the church. And by the way, we have had people leave the church over this. Not after many conversations, but yeah, we, we've had people leave the church over this issue. So I, I understand what I'm saying, and yes, it's tempting to avoid texts like this, but we can't, especially if you're asking the questions. All right, so women will be saved through childbearing in the sense God gave this as a role for women, and women are to fulfill the creation mandate by doing this. So what did God uh, ask Adam to do, along with Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and then both of you subdue it, have dominion. Now, can man do that by himself? Not yet. Not yet. He needs woman, which is why in Genesis 2, uh, God says, I will make a helper, helper fit for him or corresponding to him because he can't do this by himself. He needs help. By the way, guys, if that, uh, ladies, if that offends you, like that God called you helper, um, men can't do it without you. That's the sense in which we need help. Don't flip it on its head. And if that further, if you're like, that's not good enough. Well, in Psalms, God with the same Hebrew word is called our help and our helper. The psalmist needs God like man needs woman. Okay? And so let's, let's not buy into the cultural, you know, flashpoint, and let's let the Bible speak on its own terms. Okay? Men need women to accomplish God's creation mandate. They can't do it alone. In fact, what did God say about man when he was alone? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, suitable for him, one like him yet not like him. Man can't image God without another like him but unlike him, a whole separate person but the same kind of being, reflecting the Trinity in a sense. So, does it mean saved by producing the Savior, or does it mean saved by bearing children, like salvation of your soul by living out God's creation mandate? Well, I would argue that's not correct. 
Women cannot be saved by any works, even if their works defined in the Bible clearly. Okay? No one is saved by works. There is no one who can come to God on judgment day and say, look, I did this, I did this, I did this, and I did this. Your word laid it out clearly. I tried my best, and so you should accept me, receive me into your kingdom. That will not work. And so women cannot be saved eternally through bearing children and taking up the role that God gave them. Can't. Okay, so what then does it mean? And, and I'll give the third option, and this is the one. There are more. You want, if you want more, there's commentaries out there, okay? I can recommend a few to you. But the third one is this. Women will be saved in a specific sense by living out the original creation mandate. So having a, having a family, marrying, having kids, keeping house, being mom, uh, we'll do Ephesians 5 in just a minute, uh, living that out uh, to the best of her ability with God's grace, she'll be saved in this sense, friends, saved from current sins. Saved from current temptations that pull from the outside world. Friends, men and women are always being pulled from unbiblical streams. Always. Right? All the movies you watch, unless it's like coming out of Angel Studios, like all the movies you watch, that, that was a thumbs up to Chosen, by the way, if you didn't catch that. All, all the movies you watch are trying to pull you away from the Bible and away from a biblical worldview. Almost all of them. Right? And you need to be discerning to understand that was directly against Scripture. That was directly against. But if you, listen, friends, I know that many of you watch way more Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and Hulu and all the other ones far more than you read your Bible. Like, I don't even have to ask you. If you just do this exercise for yourself, count how much time you're on social media and movies, and then count how much time you're in your Bible, the Bible loses every time by a wide margin. And I'm, I won't even ask you to raise your hand. But just think to yourself. Therefore, what is informing you more? Social media, your news outlets, your Netflix shows, or the Bible? You see what I'm saying? So for most of us who don't really even know what's in Timothy or what Timothy's about or who's Timothy, right? We, from Disney up until the newest Netflix series that just came out, we're drinking in the world and its way of thinking. And so when something comes, the kick against the cultural air we breathe, it seems, how dare you? That's just the, the gut reaction, right? Okay, how dare you? You oppressive bigot. <laughs> and and these, this is the kind of language that will be used if you take this view. Like, you just have to be willing to receive that sometimes. And, and here's the way I receive that, okay? If this is what you're thinking towards me, guess what? I love you and I want to sit down with you, and I will even buy you a meal, and we could talk about it, okay? I, I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to just you know, take your view and get out of here. I would rather talk with you and further reason in a personal way, but here's what I do. I think to myself, okay, you are living out of your worldview, the way that you think the world works, and you're uh, being informed by certain education and by certain shows and by a certain way of upbringing, and I have a biblical worldview. Wait, that took 20 plus years, and I'm still growing in it. Friends, I've been reading this and studying this book for like 20 years. And I know some of you have been studying it longer, 
But friends, my point is, it takes a long time to form a biblical worldview. And if some of you are in here and you're like a Christian for a year, I know this sounds crazy. I know that on first reading of this, you're like, this is crazy. What am I? Where am I? Where am I right now? (laughs) Is this church? What is this? Okay, so I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't get so discouraged. And, And I know how easy it is to just type in, gender-affirming church, egalitarian church. Like, I know how easy that is. You'll find them by just one Google search, and you can go there. But I would encourage you, rather than exiting and go finding someone who, or, or a church that already agrees with you, maybe be challenged, okay? Hang in there for six months to a year and see if your view might change. Is that fair? Frank, is that fair? Frank's like, dude, I've been here for years. Love you, man. We're thankful for that, Frank. All right. So, in what sense will she be saved? Check it out. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so he's talking to Christians. Beloved, you're already obedient. So now, not only as in my presence when I was with you, Philippian church, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, because, it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Now, verse 13 is saying this, even in your working out your salvation, it's God in you and through you working. Both in your choosing mechanism, chocolate, vanilla, or pistachio. God's in that. And you're like, that's impossible. God is working in you both to will and to work. That's the acting, okay? Now, am I saying God makes you choose vanilla or pistachio or chocolate? No, I'm not saying that. God is not dictating every decision in your life. But you will not choose pistachio outside of his will. I am saying that. Okay, and this isn't a a message on free will and sovereignty. So I got to stop that. Stop it, Chris. Stop it. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Here's what's being said here. We are saved from the penalty of our sin. Okay? That's initial salvation. Friends, you are under God's wrath according to John 3.36. If you do not believe in the Son, you remain under God's wrath, and you will meet him on judgment day, and you will give an account for everything that you've thought, everything you've done, and all of your motives for the good things you've done. You'll give an account. When we come to Jesus by grace, through faith, because of his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, we are saved from that judgment day because the judge has already been judged in our place. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus takes our place on the cross. And so we are saved from the penalty of our sins, which is paying for your sin for eternity. Now, we also are now being saved, listen, from the power of sin over our lives right now. This is the Christian life. This is also what's called sanctification. This is when Jesus says to you, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, you need to take some action. What action should I take, Jesus? Gouge out your own eye. Are you serious? Oh, and by the way, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Are you crazy, Jesus? Why would I do that? It's better for you to go into life maimed than for you to have an eye and a hand and live in eternity in hell. That's Jesus' answer. I don't like that. Take it up with Jesus. That's what he said. Now, do I think he was being hyperbolic? Yes, of course he was. But he was saying to you, sin is serious, so serious that if your eyes are causing you to sin, you should probably pluck those out, metaphorically. If your hands are causing you to sin, you should cut those things off, metaphorically. In other words, you should be drastic about your sin. Don't treat it like it's a favored pet. You know, just over the weekend, I was having a conversation with someone about the exotic pet store on 286 called The Enclosure, and the logo is, is a viper, like, with a, with a cobra neck, right? And it's like, who would want one of those pets? And I know people who like those kind of pets, right? But, but the idea was, as we discussed, yeah, you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're like, where's the cobra? Like, and, and before you know it, it's having you for breakfast, right? Like you're, you're laying in your bed paralyzed, and it's like, I love you as my pet, right? And it's, it's having you for breakfast. Meanwhile, this is what sin does. You, you think it's this nice pet. Meanwhile, it's just waiting to eat you alive. In fact, that's the very way that Peter describes Satan. Listen, be on your guard because Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking what? Someone to befriend him and pet him? No, seeking someone to devour. Satan is the master tempter, and he wants to eat you alive. And what is his means? Sin. Tempting you and getting you to sin. Don't treat it like a friendly pet. Be drastic with it. Cut it out. Cut it off. That's what Jesus would say. And so, listen, we need to be saved from the power of sin in our lives right now. How? Romans 8, 13. By the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. That requires some action on your part. In fact, work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because sin is serious, and you should be afraid of it. And when dealing with it, you should tremble. It's a serious thing to cuddle with sin. And so you should put in massive work to kill it. Right? It, let's imagine that Dwayne Johnson was here and he represents sin. How many of you are going to choke that dude out? Well, I got two hands. Okay, maybe, maybe. Some of you are like, I could do it. Maybe. I'd like to see that. I would probably pay to see that. You know, I would probably video it and like go viral and make money off that. But most of us are not going to choke him out, right? He's going to choke us out. Like, even if you could get him in a headlock, he'll just flex his neck, right? <laughs> like, poof, your arm just releases. Because <laughs> you're not that dude, right? I love you guys, but you're just not. Okay? And, and, and sin is like that. It, it is trying to destroy you, okay? And even when you try to choke it, it's flexing its neck, okay? But you know who will kill it? God. God. And that's why it says, God who works in you. It's not you. It's not you in your own strength. If you're like, I can't do it, God's like, I know. That's why I will work through you to do it. I am bigger than all sin combined into one being. Okay? It's God who works in you. How? Both to will, that means the desire to kill sin, and to do it, to work. And what will that result in? God's being pleased with you. 
Okay? Now we know this is, this is what this means because of Paul's other 12 letters. Paul is explicit in all of his letters. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That's Paul on repeat. And so he has to be saying here in verse 12, it's salvation from current sins that have power over your life. Okay? Get free from the sin that so easily entangles you. You can do it by God's help. That's what he's saying. And so, what is being said in 1 Timothy 2? She will be saved through childbearing. Okay, friends, any, we'll do mothers and fathers. Any mothers and fathers ever experience, even once in your life, your children and having the role as a parent and keeping house, does it ever bring out any sin in you? None, right? None, never. Crying in the middle of the night, right? Like I'm trying to sleep, I'm already a light sleeper, and on my door in the middle of the night, juice! Really? You're disrupting my sleep for apple juice. Are you serious right now? Right? And I want to I wanna do the, you know, that's, that's the temptation, right? Now, if I don't choke him, I beat the temptation. And then I even, I even double by getting it for him and serving him. I am referring to my son Israel, by the way. Right? Like, not only did I not choke you, but in the positive, I served you by getting you juice. And then... You better not wake up again. <laughs> Back to bed. So the idea here is, you, you guys know what I'm saying, right? If you, if you don't have children, just, I, I know that you look at other parents and you're like, mm, mm-mm, mm-mm, okay? Put yourself in their shoes. You have no idea what it's like. <laughs> the idea is, friends, marriage will bring out sin in you. All the spouses say Amen. Marriage will bring out your sin. Having children will bring out sin you didn't even know was in you. Right? All the parents say amen. amen. Right. You're like, you're so cute. And you're lucky you're cute. Because you might not be breathing right now. Right? I'm kidding. All right? If, I'm kidding. Kidding. Kind of. Kind of kidding. 30% kidding even. Right? All right, so I think that's the sense in which women will be saved through childbearing. That God has this design for women, okay? They are equipped not, not only physically to have babies, but then they're equipped biologically to keep them alive. Now, I understand. Okay, I'm full, full understanding that sin has broken our bodies, okay? We, we, were, in, we were infertile for years, and only by prayer, the laying on of hands, and the anointing with oil, according to James 5, that we have a biological child. And I'll tell you that story. I've told it publicly, but that's the only way we have a child, okay? We were unable to have kids for years, and God chose uh, in one instance to heal, okay? But then we've also said there are other ways to have children. You can foster, which we do, and you can adopt, which we have done, okay? And I would highly encourage all of you to consider that, even if you have kids, now, I will warn you, it will tear you up. And so you will need uh, Philippians 2, 13. You will need God to work in you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Because sin that you didn't even know was in you will come out. 
I guarantee it, okay? But women will be saved, sanctified, by living out the creation mandate like obedience to God's original demand. Do you think that God says something and then later changes his mind? and be like, yeah, that was, that was back then in Genesis. No, he still wants multiplication of people and especially Christians, which is why there's so much instructions to fathers and mothers to bring up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord because he wants multiplication of Christians in households. Okay? And, and again, this is not a, not a text about um, parenting, but that's the idea. This is God's design, okay? And so all of what I've said so far is God's design, and God's design is always good, but culture will always take God's design, flip it on its head, and find a way to say, no, that's bad, that's evil, and that's, that has Satan written all over it. If there is an enemy of God, which we believe there is, he will take every clear and explicit command of God and he will find a way to flip it on its head and call what is good bad and what is bad good. Just read the commands of God, see what God calls good, and then look out into the culture or look in your own life. And how are we to be saved? In part, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the world. Conform, molded into its image. Rather, you are to be transformed, changed by what? By the renewing of your mind. Your mind needs to change about some stuff. Romans 12, 2, read it for yourself. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed, changed, repent by the renewing of your mind. Okay? That you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, what does that test and approve mean? It means taste and see. Like, how many of you have gone to the buffet, and you're like, I don't know what that is. I don't know if I should eat that, but I'm going to taste it. I'm going to test it and see if this is good. And you taste it, and you're like, I'm going to have some more of that, right? First time you eat sushi, you're like, I don't know, man. And then you're like, sushi bar, please, right? And you tasted and you approved. You, you tasted and saw that it was good. And some of you were like, never that, okay? To each their own. But the point is, try God's will out, which is where? In his word. Try it out and see if it's good. And if you live out God's word consistently, over time, you'll see this is good. But the first time you try it and the second time you try it, it might not taste that good. Just a warning. Okay, and I'm way over time, and I got 20 more texts, so I apologize. But I'm, I'm pretty much done, okay? Let's see, what do we want to do? Look at that, look at that. We're, I'm just going to spare you, okay? Let's, let's just end with this, all right? Ask a question, a subsequent question. Hey, Chris, can you do a part two, and I'll unpack the rest of the message, okay? Just ask, and Pete will approve, okay? Romans 16, 1 to 2, commends, I think, uh, a, a high, high condom, commendation, not condemnation, of, of, of a famous woman in the Bible, okay? So one of the questions was pertaining to, like, what can women do? Like, can women do ministry? And the answer is absolutely. I, I want you to think about this. Just because women can't be pastors, like, most men in the church can't be pastors either. Right? Like, you look at that qualification list, and that X's out 95% of the men, too. Right? So, so don't get it in your mind. It's like, oh, that's restrictive. That's oppressing women. Well, it's also oppressing 95% of the men. Right? Okay. 
I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Okay, this is uh, Paul ending the letter of Romans, and he's writing it from Corinth. And he calls her a servant. That little A there is a note in the ESV. And that word is the word for deacon or deaconess, if it's female, okay? A servant or a deacon of the church at Centria. Centria was the port city of Corinth. And so Phoebe is a trustworthy deacon of the church at Centria. And look, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. You better take care of her. You better not exploit her because she's a woman. And help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Meaning she has some means and she has taken care of the saints, including Paul, like funded his ministry. And she has enough money to go from Corinth to Rome and that's expensive in the first century. Now wait, what is the significance of this? Friends, do you realize that this woman was carrying the original autograph of the letter to the Romans? Friends, if we found this autograph today, it would be worth billions and billions of dollars. Phoebe was being trusted with the very word of God from the Apostle Paul. Like that's a serious thing. He's like, I'm giving this to you, my sister, guard it. And then he tells the church at Rome, because she's leaving from Corinth to Rome, you better receive her and you better take care of her. I mean, that's a serious thing, guys, seriously, okay? Philippians 4, 2 to 3, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche, these are two females, to agree in the Lord. There was some kind of dispute between them, and, and some scholars even think that they were gathering uh, groups unto themselves and, and maybe ready to fracture the church at Philippi. I, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women, look at this, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Like side by side, what does that mean? That means Paul's here and Iodian is here and Syntyche's here. And what are they doing? They're working for the gospel's advancement. Right next to the apostle Paul. Now, does that mean they were preaching at Philippi? No, it doesn't mean that. What that does mean is you can work for the gospel's advancement and the kingdom of God's expansion without having to preach as a pastor. There are many, many ways to do ministry, friends. Many. So, so this is not a, a message about marriage either, but we've preached on Ephesians 5 at least five to ten times in this church, okay? And so what are the restrictions on women? They are to be under the leadership of qualified male leaders in the church and under the leadership of a qualified biblical man in the home. Okay, and Ephesians 5 lays this out, but I don't have time to do it. I'm going to quit with, or not quit, I'm going to stop with this. How many of you have read the story of Rosaria Butterfield? Put your hand high, let me see. One, two, three, four, just four of you. Okay, I want to heartily recommend Rosaria Butterfield's now four books, and I think in September her newest one comes out. But the first one is really important for you to read. Who is she? She was a lesbian and a feminist and an activist for the LGBTQ community. And she had a partner, and she was a tenured professor at Syracuse. Right? Talk about someone who is not likely to become a Christian. Who is she now? 
She is the wife of a Reformed Presbyterian church planter, and not just Reformed Presbyterian, but this denomination's Reformed Presbyterian, like the RPCNA, the most conservative Presbyterians there are, like Psalms, no instruments conservative, okay? That's who she is, total conversion. Her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, was published here in Wilkinsburg, Crown and Covenant, right down the street, okay? Um, Her, the pastor that led her to Jesus is the lead pastor's father, Kent Smith, and he goes to this church. He's like in his 80s. You can go talk to him about Rosaria on a Sunday morning, okay? And Rosaria has spoken at tons of conferences in front of thousands and thousands of men and women, okay? And her books are like best-selling books, okay? So can women do ministry and have an impact for the kingdom of God? Rosaria Butterfield is one example, and she is probably the most unlikely person to believe what I believe or what I just uh, conveyed to you from the scriptures, and she does, and probably even more so than me. She's probably a little more strict on complementarianism than I am. But here's what she says, okay, and I'm done with this. This is from a podcast that she recently, this is just, just released a week or two ago. Uh, the podcast is called Christianity and Liberalism. It is the 100th anniversary of J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, written in 1923. Okay, they republished it. Um, and they did a podcast interviewing various people on various chapter themes. Rosario is one of them. She has two uh, podcast episodes, and she recounts her story and talks about all things LGBTQ plus and the gospel. Okay, here's what she says. She says, I am dizzy with all the roles I've played in various contexts in my life. Now, we're talking here, when we talk about women in ministry, we're talking about roles, okay? We're not talking about dignity, value, and worth. We're talking about roles. What do they do? Men and women have the same dignity, value, and worth as image bearers. We clear on that? Talking about roles. I'm dizzy with all the roles I've played in various contexts in my life. The role I play right now as a mother, grandmother, and homeschool mom is easily the most powerful role I've ever played in my life. I can do 50 things that nobody else can do for my family before 9 (laughs) a.m. Now, by the way, she has no biological kids, but she has a massive amount of fostered and adopted kids. Like, you read her story, and it's like a foster care, you know, hotel. They just serve, 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 serve kids without parents, okay? She says, I am, or no, I was a tenured professor at Syracuse, but also a visiting professor at Geneva College. There were these three options. I could go back to Syracuse and be a tenured professor. I could stay at Geneva and work as a Christian in a Christian university. Or I could be a church planner's wife and clean toilets the first, Lord, the first thing Lord's Day morning at the community center where the church met and the night before was open to men's basketball. Guess what she chose? The third. And you're like, seriously? From professor to toilet scrubber? Now listen, I'm not saying women have to scrub toilets. I'm just telling you what she said. Okay, now wait. She says, there's no way I could be Kent's wife and somehow do all those other things too. I could either be Kent's wife, and whatever work I did outside the home would either support Kent's mission, K-E-N-T, that's her husband, uh, for where our home was going, or I could be at odds with him. And I'm very grateful that the Lord led me very clearly to be just Kent's wife. 
Somehow we think that if women could just go off on her own, she could do it better. And the world believes that men and women are interchangeable. Okay? And, and listen, you cannot say that Rosaria has not had a massive impact for the kingdom of God. I mean, I learn from her books. I listen to her lectures and podcasts. Okay? And she probably, and, and again, this is my idea, because of her being willing to submit to the Bible's gender roles, I think that's precisely why God has used her so widely and why she's so sought after. My view. You could argue with me on that. All right, so we do not have any more time. I've gone well over an hour. Uh, I'm sorry for that. If you ask for a part two, we can explore all the other texts and what they mean um, in, a, in a subsequent sermon. Again, I said at the beginning, there's no way you could say all that needs to be said on this. We've touched on a few important things. Um, here's how I want to end, and the worship team's coming up, and I am done. Jesus is the Savior of both men and women. What does that mean? for dignity, value, and worth. Friends, men are equally as sinful as women, and we equally need the Savior. We are equally a mess without Jesus. And here's the good news, friends, that both men and women begin to be changed and transformed into the likeness, the character, and the quality of Jesus, starting at rebirth, and it won't end until we die, but we're all on this same journey equally of being changed into the image of God from one degree of glory to the next. And so in some sense, friends, we're all on the same mission. We're all on the same mission. Men and women in the church and in the home are all on the same mission. What is it? It is to glorify God by enjoying Him, and it is to work for the expansion of His kingdom, for His glory, not ours, and it is to be continually changed and transformed into His image. That's for all of us. Okay? Now, how that looks and how that plays out in daily life is going to look different, and God made it so, and that's okay. But we equally need the Savior, and without Him, we are lost. It's not that women need Jesus more than men, and it's not that men need Jesus more than women. We need Jesus, period. And so, in that light, and because of Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection, we will sing, and we will celebrate that life, death, burial, and resurrection right now uh, by taking communion and singing.